You are not your job. You're not how much money you have in the bank. You're not the car you drive. You're not the contents of your wallet. You're not your fucking khakis. You are the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. Gentlemen, welcome to Now Playing's bonus review of Fight Club. If you wake up at a different time, in a different place, did you wake up as a different person? Hosted by Arnie. Supposedly, he was born in a mental institution, and he sleeps only one hour a night. Stuart. He was full of pep. Must have had his grande latte enema. And Marjorie. The little scratch on the roof of your mouth that would heal if only you could stop tonguing it, but you can't. The first rule of now playing is, this podcast will have detailed plot spoilers. The second rule of now playing is, that this podcast will have detailed plot spoilers. The third rule of now playing, is that this podcast will have harsh language. Fourth rule, only three people to a review. Fifth rule, one movie at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no sequel is too obscure. Seventh rule, reviews will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule, if this is your first time listening to Now Playing, listener discretion is advised. As always, I will carry you kicking and screaming, and in the end, you will thank me. Today we're discussing Fight Club, starring Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Helena Bonham Carter, directed by David Fincher. I am Jack's constant co-host of Now Playing, but you can call me Arnie. Stuart in L.A. And Marjorie. And I'm sorry, all you space monkeys, but we are going to break the rules here. We are going to discuss Fight Club, finally, a movie I think we've all kind of hoped that we could cover at some point, although the obvious franchise for which wasn't uh, so clear until Marjorie needed a movie to help promote her own kind of fitness club. Yeah, I every year have been doing the Fight for Air Climb, which is a vertical race up the tallest building in Springfield, Illinois, which don't get too excited about. It's 32 floors, but that's still a big feat. It's not exactly an easy feat. Is it rigged with nitroglycerin? It is not. Oh. But I climbed up the stairs and thank you guys for all raising money and helping me out. Yeah, I wanted to thank everyone as well. I was the one on Facebook prompting everyone's donations because we do donations for us twice a year, but... We find charitable endeavors very important, and so this has been the third year, I think, that we've gone out to you listeners asking to raise money for charity, in this case, the American Lung Association. And we set a goal this year of $3,000, which was a incredibly high goal. We came just shy. One of you demented listeners donated just enough, so the exact total ended in 666. And I love you for it. <laughs> that is perfect. But we raised $2,666, making Marjorie's total the biggest of any local Springfield participant. Yeah, I was the number one fundraiser. The guy who actually was number one had seed money because he does it competitively. So I was... 
the top fundraiser. And so it's kind of cool. And I raised a lot of money. They fell short of their goal this year, which is kind of sad. And if you don't know anything about the American Lung Association, what they do is they fund research to help end lung disease. They provide anti-smoking programs because, you know, smoking's bad. And it gives you wrinkles, which is something they don't tell you when you're 18. If you told people they're going to get wrinkles, they wouldn't do it. So here we are doing our own, I guess we'll call this flight club. (laughs) <laughs> for 32 flights of stairs? Sure. And it might be 32 hours long, given how dense and incredibly out there this movie and book and phenomenon really is. I mean, wow. I have watched this movie no less than five times, just for this viewing, I, I want to say. Just to be prepared for this recording, I watched it with each of the four different commentaries on the DVD, and then, of course, one time just to experiencing it again. I saw it in theaters back in 1999, and I've seen it a couple times since here and there on TV. And I didn't see this in theaters in 99. I was kind of burned on David Fincher. I mean, after the game, I mean, I'd gone back and forth. I hated him after Alien 3. And donors who donated way back when for our Alien series or our DVDs heard that. And then he did Seven, a movie I absolutely loved. Then the game, I again thought he might have been a one-hit wonder. Fight Club came out. And I just didn't see it, had other things going on. I wanted to see it. Marjorie and I were dating when this came out on video. And so I rented it, and Marjorie decided she didn't want to see it. She went home. I watched the movie alone. And it's one of those rare experiences where the movie ended, and I'm like, Motherfuck, you have got to see this movie! I am watching this movie again today, the very next day, and you are going to watch this movie with me! Because it was one of those movies that as soon as it ended, I wanted to just rewind, start it over. Had I been in the theater, I probably would have bought a ticket for the very next showing, because mindfuck twist movies, you always got to see twice to see if they abide their own rules, don't you? Yeah, I agree. And 1999 was a big year for that. It was the same year as Sixth Sense, as The Matrix. I think that there was just a lot of really ambitious, crazy, sprawling Hollywood movies that year. This was one of them. I didn't see it twice, but I remember being struck by how strange and unexpected it was. I had been marketed a boxing movie, yeah, starring People's Magazine's Sexiest Man of the Year, and what I got was... Far, far different from that. What it actually made me do, rather than watch it again, it made me catch up with the author, Chuck Palahniuk. And I have, over the years, read about half of his body of work because the voice of Fight Club truly does belong to him. Everyone else that's here, Brad Pitt, Ed Norton, David Fincher, they're really all in service of that novel. Do you guys know Palahniuk? I know him because of this movie. And we saw the film Choke based on another one of his. When you said you didn't know what retrospective we could do, I was like, well, we could do a Polinick retrospective. (laughs) A two-part. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, we could have. Agent Coulson's directorial debut. We could have done Choke. Choke is pretty good. And I think Sam Rockwell is one of the most underappreciated actors because he is quite a chameleon. Yeah, I love Sam Rockwell. Didn't love the movie. I, it ultimately felt like it was underfunded, maybe. And yeah. no one would confuse Fincher for Agent Coulson. Uh, I'll just put <laughs> it that way. But yeah, I, I, he's got a really strong, distinctive writing voice. You just, within seconds, he grabs you. He's, it, they, they almost don't read like stories. They're like 
anarchist cookbooks. It's like he sits around all day and thinks of all of these horrible things that people could do to one another, and then he writes them all down and sticks them into paragraphs. I mean, it really does feel that way. That's why this movie feels so dense, and while there's so many tangents to it, is there's almost no real cohesive story. It's just a collection of anarchy. What's funny is the book had a bit of an urban legend about it going around after this movie came out. I started hearing about it in whispers. Like, it's written with no paragraphs and no punctuation. It's just words that just go from one into the other, and it's a challenge to read. And so I went to Barnes & Noble, picked it up. I'm like, that's bullshit. Yeah, he has written books like that. I just want to add, I feel like every time, in order to give each book a distinctive twist, he'll throw a novelty in. And he did write a book exactly in that way, and I didn't finish it. But um <laughs> that is not the case for Fight Club. It's actually a simple read. You could probably do it in a day. It's 200 pages and, and really simple, spare prose. It's amazing that any Hollywood studio made this film. It's even more bizarre to me that it was 20th Century Fox. I think Fincher was a little gun-shy to work with Fox again as well. I mean, he had had a very bad experience with Alien 3, and he didn't believe that the same suits that were breathing down his neck and what he felt like was compromising his vision would let him make a movie like Fight Club. He loved the book and wanted to do it and was definitely one of the final choices when Peter Jackson balked out and Brian Singer wasn't available and... I think they also wanted Danny Boyle for it. Of those three, only Boyle makes sense. I can't imagine what this would look like as a Brian Singer film. I could, I get it to a certain degree. I, well, I mean, I, yeah, there's the usual suspects that has the twist ending. I mean, I guess if you're looking for somebody who does twist endings. Yes, but. right. But I think it was really the fact that Fincher had that relationship with Brad Pitt. They had just had all of that success with Seven. I think that's ultimately why this cohered and why they were left alone. For half a year, they shot a pretty expensive movie. I think this was budgeted around $60 million. A lot of money. And they basically had the freedom to obviously do whatever the hell they wanted and then had to explain themselves when they turned in their first cut. And there isn't a lot of deleted scenes. There were a lot of things that were challenged, but ultimately the script that they wrote, the book that was made, all of it is pretty well represented in the final product. Well, why don't you tell the listeners what was represented in a plot summary? I'll try. Edward Norton stars as a self-described 30-year-old boy who's so dull and anonymous, he doesn't even merit a name. I'll call him the narrator because he's always yapping away in voiceover about his pitiful IKEA-furnished lifestyle and his miserable job assessing defective vehicles that cause roadside accidents around the country. This guy is headed for a crash of his own if he can't find relief from insomnia that's kept him in an agonized stupor for weeks. A wake-up call of sorts comes when the man's bachelor pad is destroyed in a freak gas explosion, forcing him to move into a dilapidated house with an eccentric soap salesman he just happened to meet on an airplane. Tyler Durden, as personified by Brad Pitt, is everything our wimpy protagonist is not. Fearless, extroverted, a rock star, eager to expose the flaws and hypocrisies of society through inventive pranks and provocations. Tyler first tests the narrator's character by baiting him into a fistfight outside a bar. Spectators gather, and soon there are volunteers to join in the bloody fun. Tyler moves the action to the tavern basement and becomes ringmaster to Fight Club, a nightly ritual where men beat the crap out of one another to reclaim the dignity they lost to dissatisfying home lives and day jobs. All is harmonious between these newfound blood brothers until Tyler brings home Marla Singer, a chain-smoking goth chick 
the narrator knows from his days attending cancer support groups. And no, neither one of them has actually ever had cancer. They just crash those meetings looking for community and free coffee. Marla makes moves on both men, but Tyler wants sex with no conversation afterwards, and the narrator is too intimidated by her man-eating persona to act on his attraction. It's easier for him to focus on Fight Club, and so he beats himself up on the job and makes it look like his boss was his attacker in a scheme that allows him to draw a blackmailed salary while staying home and devoting all his time to the fight club. Meanwhile, Tyler gives his most devoted boxers homework assignments that require them to go out at night and vandalize various corporate franchises. These graduates become known as space monkeys in Project Mayhem. As Marla grows more vulnerable, Tyler becomes more nihilistic, and the narrator grows more confused about Project Mayhem's ultimate goals, particularly when Tyler orders massive quantities of explosives to be created, no questions asked. Then folks start getting hurt. A disciple is shot and killed trying to blow up a fountain. A police commissioner is nearly castrated. A convenience store owner is held at gunpoint and ordered to return to veterinary school or die. And even the narrator himself nearly perishes in a car accident intentionally caused by Tyler. But Tyler isn't the crazy one. A big third act twist reveals Edward Norton and Brad Pitt are one and the same person. Or rather, the sleep-deprived nerd has invented his rebellious split personality to serve as a father figure and give his foundered life new direction. And while our narrator may have at last come to his senses, Project Mayhem is no longer listening to him or Tyler. The space monkeys have been conditioned to see their final mission to the end, detonate those explosives under every major credit card company, and watch the economic playing field wiped clean. The nerdy recall assessor concludes the only way to silence his inner anarchist is to shoot himself in the head, leaving Brad Pitt's brain spilt on a penthouse floor while Ed Norton is gasping through a rather severe hole in his cheek. Surviving this improbable gunshot wound further impresses the space monkeys who bring a kidnapped Marla to the penthouse. The lovers hold hands and wonder if their future will survive the explosives that begin bringing down the skyscrapers as credits roll. Of course, there's a lot more to it. That's why we got the rest of the show to talk about it. I don't even know if we can get it all in, but we should definitely try. I think we'd have to record for like 24 hours to talk about everything in this movie and perhaps even have it running a few times in the background. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, we have to be selective. There's so much here. Obviously, I'm going to put it up at the top here. I think it, it would be hard to talk about this movie without talking about the twist. And that is our two leads are two sides of the same split personality. Yeah, that was the mind fuck that made me want to see this a second time. And Because when they reveal it in the movie, you even get to see a few of the scenes played out without Brad Pitt there. Because he wasn't there. And so I wanted to go back and see the movie and start to see where the tells are. And the tells are all over this movie. They are. Some of them are just the tip of the iceberg, too. I mean, I think you could probably watch this over and over and not even see them all, even if you had a list, because I don't know that they've all been accounted for even now, because I've learned new things now watching it recently. What's funny is just a month ago, I was on Facebook and saw somebody discovered a brand new tell that nobody had really noticed before. One of the scenes, Ed Norton gets a call on a payphone and Brad Pitt said he star 6 9 him. Well, 
if you see this in a movie screen on that payphone, it specifically says incoming calls not allowed. I mean, there's just so many tells in here that you almost have to go through with a microscope. Yeah, it's in your face once you know. But I got to say, first viewing, I do remember it. I didn't guess it. And I'll go ahead and say further, it was kind of disappointing to me. I actually thought it was kind of bullshit. It, the movie was coming out about a month after I had seen Sixth Sense and, you know, a couple months after Matrix. And I just felt like, oh, here's another one of those movies trying to do one of those crazy twists. It was a thing at that time to do one of those twists that made you go back and look at the entire movie in a new way. And I felt like as a thriller, which is how I first experienced this movie, it felt like a gimmick. It felt like a way to coming out. Now, having watched it again and absorbing the point of it, I can't imagine the story being told any way. And that's largely because I come to see it as this buddy comedy in a weird sort of sense. I mean, it works to me now because I have to accept the fact that Tyler Durden is a yin-yang of destructive and creative forces. And I really do think they've done something good here with their casting. I think if nothing else, they've really nailed the different personality types just by casting their leads properly. Well, what's funny is you look at Edward Norton, and this is an actor who, and I talked about him a bit on Hulk, but I've liked him since Primal Fear. I'm not one to go seek out any Richard Gere movie, but that was on HBO, <laughs> and I gave it a shot, and I'm like, wow, I really like the movie. It also had a twist ending, but if you take that as kind of a start of Edward Norton's mainstream career, and then you have this, and then he goes on to play Hulk, I mean, yes, there are some other high parts such as American History X and Rounders, and I won't bother mentioning the Italian job for his sake, but I see him as a character actor who continually plays split personalities. He's the altar boy that you'd never suspect was doing the devil's work. That's the way I see it. And that's actually, wasn't he a literal altar boy in <laughs> Primal Fear? It's been a yeah, long time. Exactly. And that's, that's left a lasting impression with me. I, he's got such a sweet face. There's just nothing that this man could do wrong. And yet look at the movies that he makes. I mean, even in Death to Smoochie, this guy really <laughs> wants to hurt us. <laughs> well, you would be hurt if you watched Death to Smoochie. Which I did because he and Robin Williams were in it. But he just comes off so puny. I mean, when he American History X came out and he was playing this badass white supremacist, I initially thought that was going to be terribly poor casting because the guy doesn't look like he could hurt a fly. And yet, repeatedly, including in this movie, he makes me think he could kick my ass. Yeah, he's definitely got an edge here, and he's good at disguising it. And that's important because that is how his character is defined. He largely does nothing. This is a very passive narrator. He is there largely to offer commentary while Tyler, Brad Pitt, gets to do all the cool stuff. I mean, I think it's telling that the movie starts with him on his knees sucking Brad Pitt's gun. For most of the movie, he is playing that subservient role to the Brad Pitt character, and he really doesn't make an active choice until that moment at the top in the penthouse where he decides to take that gun and shoot it. Eh, he makes a few others, but mostly, A little, yeah. but, but you get my point. He is a person that runs away from making choices, and that this is really a journey about maturity for him, that he will have to accept responsibility and do something in his own name. 
But what's funny is, despite that, I really, even the first time I saw this movie, even before I knew they were the same, I like this character. He is a blank enough slate. I mean, like you mentioned, he doesn't even have a name. And that was something that I didn't even catch, even after multiple viewings. I mean, names are so irrelevant in movies. We have a hard time sometimes in now playing. What the hell was this person's name in this movie? And IMDB helps us. But I never even noticed he doesn't have one. But his plight was one that really clicked with me. He was a few years older than I was when I first saw this. I was 25. I was working a shit job that I really didn't care about for shit wages and kind of listless. And that's where he starts off as well, is this office-thrown, tie-wearing, bored person with insomnia. And what's really amusing to me, though, is how much my life has even further become his. Well, I think it's a great movie to see when you're in your 20s and you're fresh out of college and you're just getting started in your life because the narrator said he was 30. And you think, oh, God, I don't want to end up. I want to make a difference. I want to do something with my life. I'm not going to have an IKEA furniture. And here, all of a sudden, I am 40 years old. I've got IKEA all over. And... I have become exactly what this movie hates. And what's really funny to me is when I saw this movie the first time, I thought Ikea, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was like the bastion of upper class, expensive, (laughs) urban. And now I have the stuff and I'm like, well, this is like a step above Walmart with names like Flurgan. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's disposable is how it's really defined. It's really trendy. I think it's cute stuff. It doesn't last. No. After a year or two, the leg breaks off or it chips or it just wobbles and it isn't built to last. You build it yourself. And the reason why it's cheap is because it isn't meant to be forever. I think that's the point of the IKEA lifestyle that he has is that everything in there is just sort of temporary and he's letting it define him. That's what's the tragedy is that they have that great sequence right at the beginning where his whole apartment turns into a catalog of IKEA furniture <laughs> and he's trying to debate what kind of couch represents the real him. And yet, later on, after he loses his stuff, he makes a speech that, god damn, if I don't relate to, I have that couch. No matter what, I've got the couch problem taken care of now. Yeah. And you're right. That scene is where he makes his first real choice, is that, yes, all of this stuff will be destroyed. We'll eventually find out by Tyler that he sneaks ahead of him and, unbeknownst to Ed Norton, has the whole place blown up by a gas leak. Yeah, he has to decide whether to let the insurance replace all that stuff or start anew. And and he does make the choice of going off with Tyler and going in a different direction than his life has been. That is a choice that happens around the, the act two mark. But for the most part here, yeah, he looks like a man trapped and he looks like a lot of people that work in corporate America. And his job is especially not traumatic, but I think there's a lot of dichotomy in his job because his job is to go around the country and determine whether or not the accidents of the cars were caused by a failure of his company side and he's got to make the decision whether or not to issue a recall and he's essentially doing the dirty work because like he's telling the lady on the airplane well you have to have x amount of deaths and you know we know that this problem exists but not enough people have died so we're not going to issue a recall it's a wonderfully cynical but yet 
I mean, it opened my eyes to a corporate truth that you have to balance the cost of doing a recall with the cost of not, including how much you're going to have to pay when you kill somebody. Yeah. And fortunately, people do have to make those choices. At some point, it is a number that exists on a ledger somewhere. But that's always so cynical when you realize that. I mean, we always want to believe that there's not a price that you can put on some things. But of course, there has to be in this world. And yeah, he's the guy that has to do that. It gives him a strange kind of power because on one hand, he remains anonymous. He's going from airport to airport looking at other people's car accidents. But ultimately, what he says or does is cleaning up a company that would rather not pay a big bill for mistakes that they may have made. And this goes on for about a half an hour. The first act of the film, like you said, is the narrator's life before he gets involved with Tyler Durden. And the way I'm able to not be bored to tears by this, I have to give complete credit to Fincher for this rapid montage style of storytelling where so much happens to this character in that first half hour that it never feels stagnant. You're finding out about his day job. You're finding out about his furniture. This all could be very dull, but I think Fincher used CGI in some ways that I had never seen before at this point. I mean, the opening credits are this really weird CGI kind of music video thing that you eventually realize you're seeing Edward Norton's brain and you're coming out through his pores and seeing his sweat and mixing CGI camera effects and CGI scenes with real life when you're going around his apartment and all of these different things. You're mixing slow-mo with hyperkinetic cameras and all of this. It gives it an awesome visual style that, sadly, I think Fincher keeps in his back pocket way too much. He, he comes from music videos. Yeah, exactly. This isn't a style that would have been used a lot in 90s movie making. It's huge in commercial world, which is actually where Fincher really makes his money. It's bread and butter. I mean, in fact, Fox executives derisively called him the shoe salesman all during Alien 3 because he was prominently known for making really cool Nike commercials. I think that that's why this is David Fincher's best movie is because he personally relates to the way that advertisements and commercial products have taken control over this man's life. And he wants to use their whole way of, of selling themselves against them. He has made an advertisement for anarchy in the same way that he would make an advertisement for Pepsi. And I love it. Yeah, I think the visual style of this movie, it is like watching a half hour of TV commercials or, or maybe channel flipping. You're never bored because new stimulus is always being introduced, even though the main character is stagnant and not really doing anything. There's much more interesting people around him, like Marla. I love Marla. I'm just going to say, and I really like Helena Bonham Carter because I think while she always looks exactly the same. Even in Planet of the Apes. Straight out of a Tim Burton movie because she's married to him. I think she acts so much better than her inability to change her appearance. But I want to point something out uh, just to remind people because I do think most people think of her as Tim Burton's go-to girl at this point. But this was a huge risk. 
She was primarily known as being a porcelain doll in all those really dry, merchant and ivory, turn of the 20th century drawing room kind of movies. You know, Room with the View and Howard's End and Wings of the Dove. Just stuff that, you know, it's got its own appeal, I suppose. It's fine for a Sunday afternoon kind of BBC vibe to it. But you would not think of her as modern and edgy. You would not think of her as Marla. This was a huge risk they took by casting her in this way. And you're right. It totally pays out. She does it with relish. The only thing I'd actually seen her in at that point was Mel Gibson's Hamlet, where she played Ophelia. That was all I knew her from coming into this. But she has this kooky look that this role defines her to me. No matter what else I see her in, this is what I will always know her from. But I think nowadays, yeah, she kind of plays on that quirkiness. She does, but I think we needed to, at the time, believe that she has that sensitive side. Marla is a strange and not entirely believable character. I, in some ways, think she's just as fictitious as Tyler, that maybe we're just relying on the way the narrator sees her and not who she really is. Because she, without much screen time, goes through an incredible transformation. Who she is in the beginning of this movie is not who she is at the end of it. And her likability, the idea that we could go along with her being a viable girlfriend for the narrator is because, yeah, she wasn't tainted. Like some of the other choices mentioned, like Courtney Love. That's an obvious one, right? Courtney Love, you know that she's going to embrace that crazy side. You know that she'd be game for going to cancer survivor meetings and smoking a cigarette and laughing at them. Well, hell, she's probably doing it right now. Yeah, she might be. But I think that Marla, they did a very good job with her portraying the dramatic friend because everyone has a dramatic friend where everything is a problem or exaggerated everyone knows at least one train wrecker has known and that's who marla is you know the person who does things just appear weird and quirky and they're not really into it but they're going to do it because it makes you think that they're weird and that's kind of how i viewed her character i don't know that she was affecting too much i mean she was a step above homeless is part of it. I mean, she's stealing food off of Meals on Wheels carts just because she can't afford it. She's stealing clothes out of washing machines, taking them next door to the secondhand shop just to get some money. I don't think she has a job. Wait, is it that she can't afford it or she's just a bitch? <laughs> Seriously, there, there's a fine line. Yeah, I, I agree. That's exactly right. And it's not clear from the book either. I, there's not enough of Marla. We don't see Marla independent of the way that the narrator sees her. And largely, he sees her as a threat. So we kind of see the worst of her. We never really know the rest of her until we start to get those shadings towards the end where she moves from being a man-eater into being really a victim. But the fact that, you know, you've kind of glossed over this, the way they meet is because Edward Norton, he's an insomniac, and the only way he can find relief, the only way he can have any emotional outlet at all, is by going to these support groups and pretending he has... And I mean, this is one thing that cannot be undersold. This movie is fucking funny. And if it wasn't, then I think that it would just be completely repulsive and a car wreck to look at. But because of the humor, the fact that the narrator's going to sickle cell support groups. Did you guys get that? The sickle cell anemia? Did you get that joke in that? Yes, because he's the only white one in the yes, room. Yes, because it is a disease that affects African American and Middle Eastern people. Primarily. Primarily, there are yes. The rare others, but yeah. I mean, he's going to 
testicle cancer support groups. And what's funny though is Marla's going to the testicle cancer support group <laughs> just as much as Ed Norton's going to sickle cell anemia. Yeah, that's where he kind of draws the line is, is that this has been the only comfort he's had from his insomnia is meeting these groups. He, he meets Meatloaf. We got to talk about him in a minute, but he's starting to form his own friends and, and to get his identity. However, false. And then she comes in there. And I think she's a little less respectful than he is, but she also is reminding him of what a phony he is. And and I think that's ultimately why he goes up and talks to her, is that he wants to get her to leave, but it is, ends up being the, the start of a very long and strange courtship. Yeah, I mean, he says, her lie reflects my own, but it's funny that we don't hate him for doing this. I mean, he's sitting there, and there's a man with no balls hugging him and crying, and if this wasn't played so goddamn funny, wouldn't this character be absolutely abhorrent? And because we don't hate him, then we can't hate Marla for doing it. But don't you feel bad for him that the only way we think at this point he can sleep, because we don't realize the reason he's not sleeping is because he's Tyler going out and slicing penises into children's movies and pissing in soup, we think he just needs a good cry. And then you, you just kind of feel sympathetic towards him that he just needs somehow that connection because it does appear up until this point he has a very lonely life. I have to say I don't feel sympathy for him at this point. I'm kind of jealous of his cool apartment with all that furniture. And I just kind of am going with him on the journey. But I neither feel bad for him. I think because of his wry narration... I'm still kind of going with him. Yeah, I think it's because of the voice, because, yeah, it's written so distinctively. It's a character unlike any I've heard before, and I just laugh at almost everything that he says. So I think I'm with him in that respect. But I do think it's Ed Norton, too. I do think he's got a sweet puppy dog face. And yeah, he's doing the exact same thing that Marla is, but she looks like a bitch, and he looks like someone that, you know, you want to hug. But that's all because in his mind, she's a threat. I guess she's a threat because she's so much like who he is or who he wants to be. She's so much like Tyler in, in many ways that he's, he's afraid to go there. And I think he's just got issues with his parents. What's more clear in the book and what I really love, it's here if you watch the movie in little bits and pieces, is that Marla and Tyler will eventually kind of represent his mom and his dad and that his dad left him when he was six years old and that's why Tyler isn't in this movie at this point is that he's still searching for that male father figure to fill his life. He doesn't want this crazy woman. Yeah, I think it's kind of telling, though, that they form a bit of an alliance right away. He can't cry with her in the group. So what do they do? They kind of negotiate it out. And this will become Norton's defining characteristic for me in this movie is that he does subversive things, but then always tries to graft the corporate mentality back onto it he hates his job but when he can't go to these meetings with marla what do they immediately do they set out a schedule i mean if if marla had a computer they might have set up an outlook shared calendar <laughs> and of course they trade numbers i see this even on the first watching as a bit of a budding romance i mean she writes her number on his hand that that's kind of a hookup move what you see people doing in bars yep but she also looks like the type of person who would not have adequate supplies in her handbag to do such things. Like, you might find some Valium, Xanax, and maybe a fifth of vodka in her purse, but 
Oh, you need a tissue? You're screwed. I don't know. I kind of look at her and I'm taken back to Ali Sheedy and Breakfast Club. And you dump out that purse and you're going to find 18 colors of pens, tampons, possibly used, and God only knows what else. A bloody knife. Yeah, I wouldn't put anything being in that bag. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, Question. And it's one I still have even after five viewings. Why does Marla like Ed Norton? I get why Norton's got the hate attraction thing going on. Why is she attracted to him? That's a really good question, and I never, ever pondered that. I just went with it. To me, I mean, first of all, he's Ed Norton, so you got the puppy dog thing going. But second of all, she's found a kindred spirit, right? Someone as twisted and fucked up as she is that can go and fake being Rupert and Cornelius and other names I love in these different meetings. She sees perhaps in him someone who can't judge her for the things she does. Yeah, I think that's got to be a big part of it is that they they just feel like they know each other intimately or or she knows him. She thinks she does. And uh, he's got to create another personality to deal with her. It's a little more clear in the book. It's mentioned and they even did film one of the scenes that she put on a one dollar bridesmaid's dress. She loves things that mean a lot to people that they then turn around and throw away. You know, things like pets that you have euthanized or Christmas trees in January. She's fascinated by something that can be so lovable one moment and the next is crap to be thrown out. And and maybe that's how she sees Ed Norton here. I don't know. But I would think that's how she sees herself. And Mm. that would be why she takes the treatment she gets from Norton slash Tyler for the rest of the movie. Right. Now, there is a third character in these opening scenes. Blink and you miss him, quite literally. But Tyler is here. And when I first saw this movie, I don't think I noticed. I was watching it on like a 30-inch television. I got to watch it for the first time in my home theater now. Stuart, I'm jealous you got to see this in a theater theater. You had to notice this completely, right? Because I found it even blown up to 120 inches to be distracting. Whereas on a small TV, it's honestly unnoticeable. Yeah, Brad Pitt appears seven times before he's actually introduced as a character sitting next to Ed Norton on an airplane. We, of course, see him in the opening frame story, but we never see his face. He's kind of standing at the window. He's got that gun in Ed's mouth. And then, yes, for six more times, he flashes in Ed's past. There's the copier. I didn't see that. The doctor. I didn't see that. I think when I noticed it in theatrical was when he's actually in a support group and he kind of pops up behind a moderator and he's looking kind of smug and smiling. He's kind of laughing that Ed Norton has resorted to this to get his masculinity needs met. The flashes do become longer, and of course, splicing something into one frame of film becomes an actual topic of this movie. They do become more noticeable. The longest shot we see of him before we actually get him speaking on the airplane is in an airport. Ed Norton's on one of those people movers going one way. Tyler Durden's on one going the other way. The camera follows Brad Pitt. And one big tell, the voiceover at that point when you're focused on Tyler says, could you wake up as somebody else? Yeah, I think he's appearing actually at pivotal moments that are leading to Ed Norton's psychotic break. I mean, the first time he's at the office and he looks around and he notices everyone is a zombie. I think that's one break. He goes to the doctor and the doctor will not give him pills. That's another break. He meets Marla 
and he pops up in the alley. Another, I think it's an escalation. I think each time Brad Pitt is appearing, Ed Norton is getting further and further into his own head. I mean, that makes sense. There was one I did not catch. It required them actually pointing it out in the DVD commentary. But when Ed is in the hotel room popping a mint and he turns on the TV and there's a bunch of chefs in an infomercial, Brad Pitt is the one on the right. I actually did catch that one, and I had seen that prior to watching it for this recording. Good job. I never would have guessed that. But again, this movie, they said they made it for people to watch on DVD. They knew it wasn't going to be in theaters long. They knew what they were making, but they knew that they had a cult item. And they made it with the idea that you could stop this at every frame and maybe find a detail that no one else would see. Well, and the funny thing was, is I never saw the Brad Pitt flashes before seeing it on a large screen, because seeing it recently on a large screen in our theater was the only time I've ever seen it on a big screen. One thing I noticed that I'd never noticed before was Bob's nipples. Seeing this on a home theater, I never realized that Bob had such pronounced stack of dime nipples under that shirt. Right. Of course, the padding of a, of a fake fat suit, the character that Meatloaf is playing is a former bodybuilder who took so many steroids that, yes, he got testicular cancer and is now on hormones that make him half man, half woman. I do have two questions about the first half of this movie, and both involve penises. The first is when Ed Norton's hugging Bob, and there's just this weird line of narration. It's the only line that I can't really get. Bob is pouring out his heart about juicing and how he has to have his pecs lanced and drained and all of this. And the narration says, strangers with this kind of honesty make me grow a big rubbery one. Is the narrator actually saying he is turned on by these support groups? I, I don't think that you necessarily need to read it so literally, but yeah, I think you could read a homoerotic reading into Ed Norton, the character, that he's definitely someone that is being drawn further and further into all-male groups, to excluding women, to avoiding issues with Marla. Yeah, I don't know that he wants to have sex. I don't know that anybody would want to have sex with Meatloaf, but yeah, <laughs> I do think that he's finding his place. He's wanted this father figure. I feel like all of the this searching really is about finding that father that left him at six years old. Meatloaf is the closest thing until he meets Brad Pitt. So maybe it does give him a witty. My second penis question is about Ed Norton's <laughs> luggage. Because he flies back into town, and this is going to be the night he discovers his apartment has exploded. But before he loses everything he owns, he loses his luggage because of apparently a vibrating dildo in the luggage. A- why wouldn't they give him his luggage back and be, until he becomes Tyler Durden, why would Ed Norton have a vibrator? He doesn't. This is something that should have been cut. I, I wanted to say off the top, I think that Jim Ewells has done a terrific job of streamlining the novel. The novel is really tangential, even more so than this movie. Every page, every paragraph, you're onto a different thought. I mean, it just pops around. What the book said was that there was something in his luggage that vibrated. I think it might have been a pager or a phone or, or something, a toothbrush, I think is what it was. But the point was it was something mechanical that vibrated. And while he was waiting to have that luggage arrive, the TSA agent talks him up about how common this is and how there is often women who have this same problem because their vibrators get pulled off of the line. Cut that. We don't need that. It is confusing. It makes you think that 
Ed Norton is using a vibrator. And I think unless that's important to the plot or your reading of this plot, I don't think that we really needed that. That was a detail that probably could have gotten snipped. But they really liked the guy's performance and they needed a reason to have Ed Norton delayed because, of course, on this flight, he has met Tyler Durden. And Tyler Durden is off to do what he can't make himself do, blow up the apartment. Well, is Tyler doing that? My reading of this has always been that Tyler set it up before the trip because the gas had been leaking in that apartment for, they said, days, filling his apartment with gas. Yeah, that's been my assumption in watching this movie is that as, you know, the pieces start to fall and you realize they're one and the same and it's the tell is going on. You're like, oh, he blew up his own apartment. That was the beginning of the end for him. But he set it up before the trip. Exactly. I guess you're right, Arnie. I hadn't put that together, but my presumption is when he's speeding away in a convertible, it's so that he can get to that apartment and do the job. But it isn't, it doesn't explode because somebody lit a match. It explodes because of the refrigerator. You're right. The arson job was done a week ago. And yeah, it was done by Brad Pitt, but only a subliminal Brad Pitt. He hadn't really materialized in Ed Norton's life yet. That's confusing, but I think you're right. I think that's the correct reading. What I was confused by, again, I'm watching it, especially this time looking for every instance of how they interact with their environment and when ed norton is in there talking to the tsa agent about the dildo and again they like that guy's performance my whole thing is the way he goes your dildo is really telling me that ed norton has a dildo but he can't say your dildo it's a dildo right he's saying it in every way without saying it but in the background tyler durden is stealing a car and people are yelling, so other people are seeing Tyler Durden steal a car. So that was one case of utter confusion over which one is real. Is Tyler Durden stealing a car, and Ed Norton is imagining this TSA agent with the dildo? Or is a car being stolen, and Ed is imagining it's Durden? And it's one minor cheat. I'm not going to... Well, this meeting was created for the movie. It does not play this way in the book. In the book, they meet on a nude beach. Ed Norton does get so fed up, he takes a vacation alone and wakes up on a beach and a nude man is standing over him. And that's how they start their friendship. And you don't even learn that until the end. But because they're making a movie and they want to sequentially build up to this friendship. And not have Brad Pitt do full frontal. Yeah, although you could cheat that. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of dicks in this movie. They could have had a body double. But yes, I think that they wanted to do it in a different way. I think meeting him on the plane was the right instinct. They started off with that great, very realistic, highly scary dream in which his plane collides with another and everyone's sucked out and it's crashing and he wakes up and who's sitting next to him but Brad Pitt next to the exit door. I mean, I think the framing of this... Of Brad Pitt being introduced in this way at the 20 minute mark as we head into act two. I think Jim Wools understands that this is how to do it in the movie. And immediately, Brad Pitt's performance is so engaging here. He's talking about soap. He's talking about dynamite. He's got a cadence and a rhythm and just a coolness to him and a confidence that's oozing through. He is absolutely wonderful. And the thing's Pitt does with this character. Tyler is never on screen not doing something interesting. You know, it's the same thing to me as Fincher. You know, Fincher used all the tricks he learned making commercials to now satirize 
commercial products. Brad Pitt, for most of the decade, was marketed as the most desirable man in Hollywood, and now he's going to turn that in his ear. He's going to pretend that he doesn't have this great body. He's going to pretend that he doesn't get by on, on his looks, that he's actually someone that is judgmental of such things. And I get it. That's what makes him cool, is the fact that he is so perfect, and yet he doesn't care. I think his clothes in this movie are phenomenal for what the character is. I mean, that red leather jacket just exudes cool, and it's everything that Ed Norton wants to be is embodied in Tyler's clothes. He wants to be Maroon Fonzie? That jacket is awesome, and you know it. (laughs) Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's worth pointing out the costume designer did pop up in one of the commentary tracks. Everything they had there was thrift store stuff. It's the same thing as Marla. He has the same clothing taste as Marla. He kind of just throws whatever's on, and he makes it work. I agree. He looks cool in all of those crazy, loud, flashy t-shirts, and even when he puts on the the boa or whatever at the end. I, I think all of his sartorial choices are the right ones for him. But it also speaks to someone that doesn't care about labels. These are not designer clothes, even though it wouldn't surprise me if H&M did come out with a Fight Club line after this movie and sell all (laughs) of these clothes at a ridiculously high price. It's that vintage style look, you know, they pulled it off very well and making it appear very stylish and up and coming. And I would be shocked if actually every single one of those pieces was a vintage find. They were created. I mean, I don't want to say that they literally went down to Salvation Army to get everything, but they created things uh, that you would expect to find there. And, And the idea is they did not want him to be a label whore. They did not want him to be someone who mocks consumerism and then wears $300 t-shirt. Yeah, he's got a great look going for him and everything he says is just the type of thing that you wouldn't expect to hear. And also, he undercuts Norton. I mean, we've been watching Norton for this whole time and he's been saying these kind of sardonic, funny things and then just kind of rips that out. How's that working being clever? (laughs) Yeah. That was from the movie specifically, too, is that Jim Wools wanted to have a moment where Brad Pitt really has the upper hand. He really shows Ed Norton that he's not smarter than him, that he's the alpha dog, and that Ed Norton can follow along if he wants, take my card, but this is the guy that's in charge. And it creates a really interesting power dynamic that when I thought these two were different people, worked for me. I mean, you kind of have this thing with a lot of friendships where there's the one who's i guess to use a 90210 comparative you have your kelly and then you have your tory spellings and in this case brad pitt's the kelly i i kind of went with that and i mean i think even career-wise at this point brad pitt was the one who everybody tried to hire for everything ed norton was a bit more of a character actor type so they fit those roles really well Yes, to your point, the studio loved the idea of casting Brad Pitt. There was never any discussion about anybody else, really. Russell Crowe was mentioned, but once they knew they could get Pitt and Fincher, that was a done deal. But they wanted Matt Damon for Ed Norton. See, not as good a choice. Mm -mm, I mean, I I couldn't have seen that. You see their repartee in Ocean's Eleven and such. It's just not the same thing. Agreed. But Damon can do unassuming and meek. Yeah, I mean... Mr. Ripley and yeah. Born Identity, he he can definitely pull that off, but I don't think he could pull every man, corporate drone, disaffected, schizophrenic 
the way. I mean, that's what I think of when you I think know, of Ed no, Norton. What you have to have is someone who is not an ugly person, but not an attractive person. You could not have reversed these two roles and had Brad Pitt play the narrator. It would not have worked. Wow, that would be something, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, you, but you couldn't do that. Yeah, no, it wouldn't, wouldn't make sense as he's the uh, homely one that can't, it, 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 introverted. Yeah, I don't exactly. see Brad Pitt in that role. Yeah, so you can't have Matt Damon do that. Now, he might be able to do an acting-wise, absolutely, in a heartbeat. But you can't look at him and be like, oh, yeah, he's totally this meek little guy just sucking it up to the man all the time. That said, I wonder if they could have shaved it out of the movie. The movie to me is a little long at two hours, 20 minutes. I do feel like although all of the bits they include are hilarious, just for a pacing issue, they could have shaved off some of these things that we're expected to believe that Brad Pitt not only makes soap, he lives in filth, but he makes soap. (laughs) But he also does the waiting job, and he also does the film projecting job. They're great bits, don't get me wrong, but maybe they should be deleted scenes. The waiting job is plot importance. You couldn't get rid of that. The splicing of the penises into film, it's a great bit, and I think it's important to the style of this film. Tyler Durden's been splicing himself into the first half hour of this movie. I think that that's important payoff for that. I know this is a longer movie at 220. I wouldn't cut a frame. Yeah, I I get your point. And ultimately, I think it's okay if the movie feels overwhelming and not a more manageable 100 minutes or whatever. But it's something that I feel, particularly since I did watch this movie five times. I did see definitely the dildo joke could get cut. I did see areas where they maybe just didn't need it. In the book, I felt like the projector thing was more important because they really emphasized the fact that they were projectors. There is this changeover where you have two different reels and a projectionist has got to stand there and turn one on while he turns the other one off, well, that's Tyler and Ed Norton, right? When one goes to sleep, the other one goes to work. And that metaphor, I think it made more sense in the book. Here, it's there, but there's so much else going on, I don't know that it has the same impact. Well, I think that's just a testament that no film at all should be watched five times in short succession. The fact that you don't hate this film immensely is a testament to how good it is. I did the same thing with Phantom Menace, and I'm still suffering shell shock almost 15 years later. Yeah, when are we going to talk about that one? I agree. <laughs> I, I, I'd love for you to, to tell me about watching Phantom Menace five times. I've only seen it once. I saw it five times opening day. I bought tickets <laughs> to every show. So by the end, I couldn't stand it. But... In this case, the cigarette burns, you ever have one of those things, like, once somebody shows it to you, you can never not see it? This movie, I'm so glad we're in the age of digital, because for the rest of my film-going life, those cigarette burns just stood out to me. I'm like, ah, there it is, and five, four, three, two, boop, because they'd do one to warn the projectionist, and then do a second one. I always, when I would rarely even notice them, figure, oh, the film has a flaw, never knew what they were, this movie points it out, and for the next five to seven years that I was still seeing filmed films, I just was so distracted by the cigarette burns. Yeah, you won't see them in movie theaters now, but you may see them on TV screenings. I mean, the fact of the matter is that they do go back to prints, and sometimes these are the cigarette burn prints, and... 
I have a couple DVDs of them, actually. Yeah, when the negative is not available, when the negative has been destroyed or harmed or, or is just not usable, they do have to go back to these prints, and you will see those cigarette burns and marks. Of course, they can always CGI them out now, too, if they really want to. And have the money, but yeah. Yes. It is a statement that this could only have been done in 1999. If they had made Fight Club 10 years later, there would have been none of this film projection stuff in here at all. But because we live in the YouTube generation, you can actually go, I did, and a special effects guy has very recently posted the first fight between Ed Norton and Brad Pitt with Brad Pitt digitally removed. Have you guys seen this? It's kind of funny. No, it it sounds like Garfield minus Garfield. Have you heard of that? No. They, it, they did Full House minus Michelle also. Yeah, Garfield minus Garfield, I think, started all this, where they've started posting Garfield strips where they've removed the cat entirely, so it's just the other people interacting in strange and surrealistic ways with no one. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what this sounds like to me, is if you go through and you remove someone. But in this case, it's a little bit better because... I mean, you wouldn't have it the way, like, when Ed Norton fights himself, you wouldn't see him fighting himself, right? It would just be Ed Norton reacting to hits that aren't there. Right, yeah. I mean, let me put it this way. When you see it this way, it's hard to imagine a crowd gathering and wanting to join in. I mean, he looks really crazy when you take Brad Pitt out of it. You put Brad Pitt there, and he's talking his talk. You're not hearing him in in this cut either, I want to add. When there's just these dead silences and all, Ed Norton looks really, really crazy, it's hard to imagine that people wanted to join his crazy club. Yeah, I mean, I'd almost see it more as performance art. (laughs) Yeah. If I saw somebody doing this, it's almost a kind of acrobatic mime with blood. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think they're on to something. I mean, I can't say this. As a man who's lived many years in lots of different places, I do feel like there are signals out there that say all the time that if you want to be a real man, you need to know how to fight, and it's really girly to talk about your feelings. You know, Marla showing up at those groups and ruining it for Ed Norton really feels like, oh, the women spoiling the fun, and and these men are literally without balls. And now, you know, he's forming a club. He's forming a self-help group that she cannot possibly participate in. In some ways, this is all about Marla and excluding the girls from what boys do. I mean, that's overt in the dialogue. Later on, they're talking about fathers and God and everything. And Brad Pitt says, I wonder if another woman's really the solution to our problems. Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, you know, this movie is not lacking for much, but it did make me really want when those moments come up and they're talking about who would you fight your father and all of that. Didn't you just kind of want to get one scene of Ed Norton's mother or father or something? I know they can't do the father because the father left. He went and franchised other families uh, and, and he's never known him. But wouldn't you like to know how much Ed Norton's mother is like Marla? I wouldn't want him to have a support structure. I like that he's completely alone in this movie. There's no ex-girlfriend. There's no co-worker friend he goes and has drinks with. There's no parents. There's no siblings. You add any of that, and all of a sudden, you have more logistical problems about this character. Right. And the fact that he is so isolated, is so alone. Is his mother dead? We don't know. He obviously isn't close to her. I like that because it helps create the scenario in which he would move in with a crazy guy who beats him up in a dilapidated house. Right. 
Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, he gets his friends here in the Fight Club. That this is where he's finally connected. I mean, everything that he was searching for in those cancer groups, I finally, it's here. And even some of those people, I mean, Meatloaf comes into this group as well as other ones. This is where he starts to get friends. That Tyler is cool and cool people get you friends because everyone wants to be around cool guys like Tyler. But again, in the reverse casting, like you were talking about, Marjorie, I have such a hard time, even when later they show us some of these scenes, picturing Ed Norton as a charismatic speech giver the way Brad Pitt is. When Brad Pitt is talking to these guys and saying all these things like he does in the bar about Martha Stewart polishing the deck chairs on the Titanic and all of this, and I mean, great lines, the things you own end up owning you, if you gave Norton those lines to deliver, I don't know that he can. He's a bit, I get him as neurotic, you know, a little bit stuttery, a little bit tentative. I can't even imagine his physicality being the one to give those speeches. But that's the whole point of his made-up persona. It is what he wants to be. There's no guarantee that what's coming out of his fake persona is actually as suave and charismatic and engaging as Brad Pitt's in his head, he thinks it is. Now, he did get the people to follow him. However, they're drunk. Yeah, yeah. It's worth pointing out, it starts in a bar. These people are inebriated. That probably helped. <laughs> yeah, and are they just as lost and damaged as he is? I think that's the point, is that everyone is as lost and damaged as he is. This is a Gen X movie, isn't it? Yeah. The millennials aren't going to get it. The boomers are going to hate it. They're going to be scared of it. This is our generation talking, especially at that point when we're entering the workforce and going, well, fuck, now what? Yeah, I mean, we've had counterculture for 30 years up to this point. I don't, the boomers have their own version of it. I mean, we saw hippies, we saw Yeah, their, their version was weed and sex. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> but there's been the punk movement. This is the grunge movement, right? This is the full flowering of Kurt Cobain and his... Yeah, generational philosophy. I agree. It speaks to me, and I do wonder how well it will be received by... Well, it wasn't well received by older critics, and I do even wonder if, yeah, the new kids are going to totally get the message. I mean, I was I was seeing where kids today, they did a profile. They didn't even know what the meaning of the word selling out was. They spend all of their time on Facebook liking products. They can't imagine not having them define them as people. But they do get this group of people just pummeling each other. And this inspired some people. Our town actually started a fight club after this movie came huh? out. Huh? What? We had a fight club? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Did you join? No. How well did that go over? I couldn't believe it, but they actually got a place with some mats on the ground. and They're cheating if they put mats on the ground. They put mats on the ground, and they would go. These were people maybe five years younger than me. These were the local college kids started a fight club. Did they get it? It became more of a costumed wrestling thing. They started, ended up wearing, like, Godzilla outfits to the fight club. Really surreal shit. But, yeah, they walked away from this movie with the idea that the way to become more connected to reality is through... Punching each other. 
And I think that is a fair confusion. I think that those people probably like the first half of the movie a whole lot more than when Project Mayhem kind of goes bad. There's a point, and it's difficult to exactly put your finger on it, but there's a point where all of this anarchy starts to look dangerous, starts to look like Nazis, starts to look like something you would not want to identify. And you're right. I think for some people, this middle section here where they're citing the rules and two guys to a fight and we're seeing these guys go at it and then hug and cry and bond. Yeah, I could see people wanting to recreate that. I could see. That's why I think this is kind of a dangerous movie. I think that, you know, one of the names that Ed Norton uses when he's putting it on his name tag is Travis. I think about Travis Bickle. I think about Taxi Driver. Another dangerous movie. A movie that inspired someone to shoot Ronald Reagan. But it does have this cool going with it, with this Dust Brothers score going on in the background. I mean, again, like you said, it's like a music video. It's like a commercial. And so... It's making it seem cool, even though I do think the movie cheats a little bit because everybody would end up looking like that bartender in the traction with all the scars at the end. There's no way Edward Norton would still have that pretty boy face after even two of these fights. Yeah, well, they all do look rough. That's how they know each other. You know, there's no talking about Fight Club. They really underscore that. Two rules about that. And we get right after one of these brutal night fights, we get this kind of funny juxtaposition. Ed Norton is sitting in the daylight with sunglasses, bruises on his face. His waiter's got bruises on his face as he brings him a salad. And all they can do is no nod at each other. They are getting hurt. It's just that we're expected to believe that uh, it doesn't cost them their job. Yeah, and some of my favorite scenes are Ed Norton in the workplace where he is in that meeting and he's asked his opinion about some software thing and he just shows his bloody ass teeth. I love that scene. The facial expression is amazing. That is one of my favorite bits. It's difficult to pick a favorite moment. It's one of the top ten. I agree. It's that the way that it shuts the guy up. I will say that. He's like, you like that, don't you, buddy? Yeah, I think about that scene more than any other because I'll be sitting in meetings and somebody will ask my opinion and I will just wish my teeth are bleeding so I could do that in response. <laughs> it's a very Hannibal Lecter, I just ate your face off kind of expression. <laughs> and you talk about people who like this movie better early on. I'm going to state that this entire section from the moment when Ed Norton moves in with Tyler to the moment with probably the first human sacrifice, which we'll talk about. Yeah. This is all my favorite part. This is where Everything is going right. You've got this buddy film going on, this total bromance between Norton and Pitt, which is working so well because these two actors are playing it so well that you believe in this friendship and that they're both just two guys having a beer and hitting some golf balls into the dilapidated houses around them and then having this fight club at night. And then, of course, there's Brad Pitt fucking Marla, eight ways to Sunday with cleaning gloves. (laughs) That is great. And see, the things that Tyler Durden is doing in the background, you're absolutely right. What he's got on, that that robe with the coffee cups on it. I love it when he's in that robe. It's fantastic. He just, he's always busy. Yeah, there's the scene where Marla tries to commit suicide by overdosing on Xanax. And who does she call when she's going to kill herself? I mean, this is a sign of how lonesome and desperate Marla is, too, is she calls Ed Norton. But in the background, Tyler Durden is playing with nunchucks. <laughs> I mean, he's just doing this crazy shit in the background that is just always amusing. He's like a cartoon character here. 
But as a result of that, the, I guess the Tyler Durden personality takes over and goes over and saves Marla. I guess the police are coming for some reason. I would think, I don't know who called them to pump her stomach. Maybe a neighbor. Yeah, it's not her. She didn't, it wasn't a cry for help, or at least she doesn't own up to that. She called Tyler and Tyler alone. And by Tyler, I mean Ed Norton. And the result was she has to stay awake because if she goes to sleep, she'll probably die. So he keeps her up. Yeah, again, I start to wonder now that I know the secret, what is Ed Norton doing? How is the changeover happening? I mean, he leaves the phone. I mean, it, he's like, I am Jack's raging bile duct. I am his cold sweat. He leaves her to die. We're expected to believe that the cold, frightened, rational side of this character would be comfortable letting Marla drop dead and that the other side just sees it as an opportunity to get a good one in. You gotta wonder, though. I mean, I take a look. I studied psychology for a while, thought about going into that, took several advanced courses and looked at schizophrenics especially. And I just have to think there's usually the gatekeeper. You know, schizophrenia, actually really multiple personality disorder. Schizophrenia is different. It's just we commonly refer to MPD as schizophrenia. But multiple personality disorder often comes as a result of abuse and creating a persona who can handle the things you can't. When daddy hits you, you have to go somewhere else. So you create this other personality that can take the abuse and handle it for you. And you project like that. So there's this, sometimes you can have, you know, Sybil with all these different personalities. And in these cases, I think of almost a third person who's never personified, who's the gatekeeper, who says when the switchover occurs. And here, I didn't think of it as necessarily anything so much as the gatekeeper says, oh, Tyler will handle this. So would Ed Norton, had he not had multiple personality disorder, allowed Marla to die? I never see anything like that in his character. He seems to be the only one distraught when Bob dies later on. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, again, I want to bring up that I think a, a lot of my curiosity might have been solved if we knew what happened to the parents. These characters, their dysfunctional relationship, they end up fucking and not being in the same room to one another. It mirrors Ed Norton's childhood. So if indeed he was had an abusive father figure, is that why he ends up with a chemical burn kiss on his hand? You think I think that's a kiss. I thought that was a cunt. I thought it was a vagina as well, and I have one, so it's okay for me to think that. Well, I mean, I, I, it's, it's definitely lips. I mean, it's, it, <laughs> it's explained in the in the book that the saliva is what makes the burn hurt, and so by Tyler planning that kiss on Ed Norton's hand, he's ensuring that not only will it burn the skin, but it's going to hurt like a son of a bitch. It speaks to a father figure who's cruel. And yeah, a fist with lips on it, it, it says a lot to me as far as a metaphor. But I, I'd like to have known that. I would have liked, with so much flashing backwards, I guess I just would have liked to have known a little bit more about the father, a little bit more about the mother, to see if I could sync them up with Brad Pitt and Helena Bonham Carter. Maybe a line here or there, but I'd like to avoid getting too Freudian. I'd like to avoid sitting with the narrator. Tell me about your mother. <laughs> well, too Freudian. I mean, this is <laughs> this movie is Freudian. It's a psychodrama. It's all happening in someone's head. But I get, I get you. I would not want it to ruin the fun. This movie works at a mile a minute. They could have thrown us a, a line or two. They could have made it fun. And I think they could have answered these questions. And, and maybe it would have helped me understand Marla. Because that's really, even now, what I'm searching to 
do is I don't quite get why Marla is hanging around other than she's self-destructive. I think that's all it takes. I mean, she talks about wanting to die, talks about people being lucky if they're dead. And what you said about her wanting the discarded things. When I watched it this time, I really watched for that relationship. Every time I watch this, and I've seen this movie at least 10 times, but never in short succession. <laughs> and this t- every time I'm watching for a new thing, this time I was watching that relationship and trying to figure out her perspective about how Tyler would call her up and fuck her and all of this. And then she'd go down and just try to have a general conversation. And it would be Ed Norton that says, yeah, I think you need to leave. And she thinks her tits rotting off. So she calls what she thinks is her lover. And Ed Norton is the one who goes instead of Tyler. But didn't you notice how irritated and annoyed and pissed off she was when, because it was the narrator, not Tyler, but she's fucking both because they're one person how pissed she gets when he says things like that when she thinks that's who she was just screwing. Yeah, we think she's the bad one because she's trying to screw both guys. And are they cool with that? I mean, is that why Ed Norton is rebuffing her? Because he's trying to be a good bro and let Brad Pitt have his girl exclusively. Well, keep in mind, there was the scene where Brad Pitt says you want to finish her off. Brad seems cool with it, too. You're right. Brad doesn't have those kinds of moral (laughs) issues ever. I suppose you're right. But it was something I thought about. In first viewing, you might view her as the problem. But yeah, now that we see the way it's really going on, this woman is being emotionally abused by someone who's very hot and cold. Yeah, but I think it's what she's used to. She takes it. She never really even complains. She gets pissed off, but she keeps coming back. Right. And that shows she's every bit as damaged as Norton. Right. But I think her coming back is what's pushing Brad Pitt to do more. I mean, it's not entirely clear. There's not any scene that really sells that. But my sense is that the reason why we get Project Mayhem is because this chick is kind of infiltrating on their boys club. Would he really put together the best fighters to go out and create art terrorism and vandalism if she weren't hanging around? I think he would have. I mean, I think Project Mayhem evolves very naturally. It starts with the greatest fight of the movie, which is Lou, the bar owner, coming down and realizing his bar has been used pro bono for this fight club. And Tyler just lets Lou kick the shit out of him. Great laugh in that. Really spooky. Yeah. And, I mean, really, you think about it with these fights and all the blood, the way he wins over Lou, he never throws a punch. He just jumps on him and lets the blood and spit and everything go on and say, you don't know where I've been. I mean, (laughs) screw fighting. You could be getting AIDS. Yeah, yeah, I agree. This scene is so much more effective than in the book. In the book, it's a fight that Tyler picks with the film projection union. It's kind of like a mob boss guy comes and it's just different. I like the fact that he's, he's doing it to, to retain the underground setting where they fight. It, it just plays better. But right at the end of that, he'd already, I think, been planning or maybe he just gets so pummeled. He's like, well, there's not going to be any fighting here tonight. So go pick a fight with someone and lose, creating what I think is the funniest scene of the movie is all these different people. Bob with his bitch tits chasing people in a mall. This guy working at like a car place, spraying people with a hose. Yeah, that one had me laughing hysterically when he sprayed the priest with the hose. And the priest is the one who throws the punch. I'm thinking about Banksy. Do you guys know this artist? He, He got a documentary called Exit Through the Gift Shop, and he's become quite popular in the last five years. He's essentially this. 
he goes around and he spray paints things and defaces billboards and it becomes social commentary. And he, he melted a police box. I, I, he's done all kinds of cool things. I wonder if this movie didn't in fact inspire his art, but I do love this stuff. I love what it represents, but I also sense that it's heading into a negative place. I, I feel like there's been problems from the get go because they have been making soap. Both Ed Norton and Brad Pitt have been stealing liposuction and basically selling women's fat asses back to them as designer soap brands. A funny idea, but I couldn't help thinking about Nazi Germany and the fact that, yes, human products were used in just a manner. There is something that's starting to creep in here that colors Tyler as not cool anymore. Colors him as a fascist, as as a dictator, as a threat. I'm not getting that at all in any of this. And in fact, when you see them stealing the fat, I'm like, oh, that's just cool and ironic. But I'm still going with them. Even with the lie burn that we talked about, I'm taking it as an extreme form of anti-Zen. But we don't see Tyler executing any of the bad and dangerous things that Project Mayhem does. We don't see Brad Pitt rallying the troops. Every bit of the harmful that you see is only Edward Norton. So you don't see any of Tyler being harmful. He's just fun-loving. So Margie, are you with me? Do you do you feel like, even though I get the, the major emphasis is this stuff is hilarious, are you getting that there's something also, that it's about to turn, that there's something about Brad Pitt's character that is not quite right? No, I, I guess I didn't see it as he was going to turn, but you could see where the movie was getting darker. Yeah. But I just kind of thought he was like this Zen master showing the narrator had to have a good time and do funny things like steal the liposuction fat and make soap. Ha ha, we got it back on these fat rich bitches kind of thing. You don't see Tyler being malicious. So as a woman, you didn't find all of this boy shit like juvenile and obnoxious and kind of contemptible. No, not really. Oh, cool. All right. And during this, I see pranksterism when they're, you know, baseball batting a Volkswagen Beetle. See, Tyler's fun! Yeah, it's at this point, I don't even get a darkness coming out of it. I take this as a revolution. I mean, the problem is, the things Brad Pitt says are speaking to me. And all that he's doing is speaking to me. And I've watched this film ten times, and ten times out of ten, I've wanted to walk out of my house leaving a lit match and just let it burn. Right, and that's the danger of this, is because it is so seductive. We're completely like Ed Norton. We want to be like this. We want to see how we might incorporate these views into our own lives until, and I do think this until is super important because it would be incredibly wrong and incredibly dangerous if this movie inspired all of the restaurant workers to go jack off into our food. I don't think they need any inspiration for that, but <laughs> I agree. No, I've seen some of those YouTube videos. I agree. It's, <laughs> it's happening anyway, and I just will continue to ignore it. It hasn't happened to me. I'll just keep telling myself <laughs> that lie. And I think it happened way before this movie. Yeah, I knew a guy a decade before this movie who jacked off into the soft serve at McDonald's. Okay, but you get my point. My point is we would not want to leave Fight Club with the message being this is the way to create a new society. It isn't. And I don't agree with that. And I don't think Fincher or Polinick does either. Right. But at this point, that's the message I'm really getting. And 
it just comes off so cool. I mean, there's the human sacrifice where Brad Pitt goes into a convenience store, takes the clerk out back. You'd think he might actually shoot him. We're sold that Edward Norton thinks he's going to shoot him. What he's doing is giving him a new lease on life, making him realize he's wasting it by being a convenience store clerk and he needs to go back to school and be a veterinarian. Now, 25-year-old me went, yeah, that's so great. He's inspired this guy to finally follow his dreams. 40-year-old me goes, great, he's going to finish six years of veterinary school and then realize he eventually is going to be bored of doing that too. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is a scene that really gets people talking. That one is brought up a lot. It's actually the scene that Fincher's agent used to convince him to read the book. Fincher wasn't really uh, motivated to read the novel until he heard about this scene. It was pivotal. I think it's pivotal, too, because it is that step beyond. It's the first time I see Tyler doing something that I don't want him to. I like the thought behind it. But I don't like the idea that he's using violence here. And it's a big difference between the book and this movie is that they kind of steer away from killing in the last part of this movie. They make it clear that all of the pranks are not going to have human casualties. In the book, Tyler kills. Tyler rigs the computer monitor to kill the boss. There is not that scene of Ed Norton staging his own beating so that he can have corporate sponsorship. He remains an employee to that boss until Tyler kills him. See, and that I wouldn't have gone with. Here, I don't even think Tyler Durden putting a gun to this clerk's head is bad because the punchline is there's no bullets. He was never going to hurt this guy. But you could still get arrested for pointing a gun at someone even if there's no bullets. I'm not saying it's not illegal. Okay. I'm saying I'm cheering him on for helping free this guy from a life of clerkdism. Right. Clerkdism? I can get that impulse, but you and I are different because I am starting to experience this as a negative. I'm starting to want to Ed Norton to outgrow Brad Pitt. Ed Norton's horrified by this moment, too. I don't think that if you look at his expression, he is with you, Arnie. What's funny is the person I'm turning against at this point, around the 90-minute mark, I'm not turning against Tyler. I'm kind of turning against Ed Norton because there's two things that happen around here that make me dislike Ed Norton a little bit, one of which is it's a funny scene. And the first time I saw the movie, I was all in it. But the more I watch it, the more that this scene makes Ed Norton come off as manipulative is when he goes into his boss's office and tries to blackmail them saying, you're going to keep me on the salary and my job is going to be not telling everyone the shit you're doing. And when that doesn't work, he beats himself up. And again, this is where I said earlier, kind of a funny mime performance. I love the body language here. Jerry Lewis is what they bring up in the commentary a lot. Yeah, that's a good one. Probably better than my go-to reference of a Nightmare on Elm Street film where something like this <laughs> happened. <laughs> but while it's a funny scene, in the end, he's completely manipulating. I would have kind of gone with it if he could have convinced his boss to hit him, if he'd been able to pick that fight and lose by his boss taking the swing. But because Ed Norton beats himself up, and of course, here's a big tell. He's reminded of his first fight with Tyler. Right. And this is how that fight would have looked. You know, we're finally seeing it through the eyes of someone else as opposed to the eyes of Ed Norton. And, and I think the look of incredulation on the boss's face is just like priceless watching Edward Norton flail himself around the room and beat himself up. And I think that the mechanics of how it's done, whether he did his own stunt or someone else did it, 
I think it worked really well and looked really good and realistic. I got to think there was a harness there that was digitally removed because some of those movements can't be done by contortionists. But it still looked good. Correct. Yeah, it was special effects work. A lot of this movie is about using special effects in ways that are non-traditional, not for superhero effect, but just by, yeah, giving us unusual uh, feats of of dexterity. But I, I ask, let me put it this way. If... This boss ended up dead. Wouldn't that sell the message more that Brad Pitt, that Tyler Durden is something you don't want to be? Is it wrong that they pull away from that and kind of make him a little bit less willing to kill? Is it wrong? No, I think they get there. But it's what keeps me on Tyler's side this time is they're only damaging property. They're only blowing up things. Car companies, they're having birds shit on Mercedes. They're hurting cars, but not the people who own the cars. And so at this point, even in early days of Project Mayhem, when it takes that next step, I'm not opposed, and I'm actually still on Ed Norton's side. I feel bad. He feels like he's become a partner of Brad Pitt in the Fight Club creation. It was the two of them. But again, like I said earlier in this podcast, he wants to graft that corporate structure onto it, so when he starts feeling out of the loop, he starts feeling rejected and spurned. Yeah, it comes in lots of different ways. It's also the fact that there's this pretty blonde boy that becomes the new favorite. You know, Brad Pitt kind of starts looking at him when they do jobs. They threaten a commissioner that's trying to crack down on Project Mayhem and they get looks together while Ed Norton decides that next Fight Club, he's going to turn Angel Face into... I think that's uh, Mickey Rourke, right? Yeah. Jared Leto into Mickey Rourke? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty brutal. And the makeup, unfortunately, that was the worst makeup in the entire movie. Yeah, Angel Face's post-fight face. The beating was really good yeah, and realistic. the beating was phenomenal. And I think the looks on everyone's face as it's happening and the blood splattering was done really well. They use blood very well in this movie, not gratuitously. It's used for effect at the right moments and not overdone. But you do feel that Ed Norton's going a little too far. Like, this is a jealous rage of sorts. By the same token, again, a line I think about a lot. I wanted to destroy something beautiful. You know, I, I think of that line as an inspirational line. You know, it, it's it's a terrible, destructive line. But sometimes preservation is a destructive impulse. I'll give you this is a moment to question Ed Norton. It may be the only one until we get the big reveal. I think he's an innocent largely throughout this. Again, I'm definitely at this, at these moments, once bad things start happening to people, I mean, once they're threatening to castrate a police officer for doing his job, I'm still fine with that because I don't think they're ever going to. They looked, I mean, it's, it's in contrast to the beginning. I mean, if we had a group where men are getting together to cry about the fact that they don't have balls anymore, I think they look just as absurd wanting to castrate somebody else. I mean, I, I do feel like we're seeing the opposite side of the Marla side where we saw something from a feminine side in that first part. And now we're seeing something from an aggressively masculine side in the second part and both when gone to extremes look wrong to me. I did find it ironic that Bob, who had no balls, was completely in on the plot to, again, I think only threaten to cut off the cop's balls. And you know what? I didn't catch the correlation there between him starting out in the testicular cancer ball-free group and their go-to intimidation. Cut off balls. Yeah. I never got that before. 
Uh, you watch it enough times, Marjorie, you'll get all of it. But I okay. agree with you. It won't hit you maybe your first, second, third watching. But it was something that eventually became very clear to me that there's a symmetry between what we saw Ed Norton experiencing in his early time in this movie and what it's become now. And I don't like either one of them. I think both of them are mockable. And certainly, I mean, you're with me at this point when the house is full of guys that have shaved their head and are digging graves and are building nitroglycerin soap bomb thingies. And yeah, Meatloaf dies. I mean, Meatloaf dying has got to be a turning point for you, Arnie. It is. And that's when I turn against the space monkeys and become completely on Ed Norton's side. I mean, when Ed Norton is trying to convince them that he was my friend, and really, you go back, this is Ed Norton's fault, because they do this kind of test to see if people can be in Project Mayhem by making them stand there for three days. Bob walked away the very first time. You're too fat, and he walked away. Tyler says you're too fat, so he leaves, but then Ed Norton chases after him, which must confuse Bob every bit as much as Marla. <laughs> right. <laughs> you just told me to go away. Now you're telling me come back? I'm fucking not confused. But if the Ed Norton kind persona hadn't chased after Bob, Bob wouldn't have been killed. That's true. But yep. then they'd all take that into that chant. His name was Robert Paulson. Yeah, anytime groups are chanting anything, I don't care what it is, a laundry list, anything, <laughs> it's scary, right? That is true cult mentality. We know that this is the time to reject what it's become. Whether we ever liked them, maybe we did, we don't anymore. And I think they are villains for the rest of this. And it's surprising to me that you have seen this coming, because to me, this is a whiplash-inducing change. Well, we've seen it coming because we saw the opening. Don't forget, this all ends with a gun in Ed Norton's mouth and explosives underneath buildings. True, but it's very easy to forget. It is. There's a lot going on in between. <laughs> yeah, honestly, until I see the end scene, every time I've watched this movie, I forget that that's how the movie started because it moves so fast. It's like the movie starts out going 90 miles an hour, screeches to a halt. And then it picks up speed and then finally gets to the end again where we started. Yeah, this would be a bad movie if this whole time all this is going on and all I'm doing is wondering, but why is Brad Pitt putting a gun in his mouth then? If I was looking for that the whole time. Every time I watch this, this movie's so kinetic and I get so lost in the film that I forget that that's how it ends. Even if I know going in, I've seen this movie multiple times, I know how it gets there, but I'm not thinking that here. But I think that part of the appeal of this movie and why it's easy to forget where we started and to miss so much and then see stuff you've never seen before is nothing is an accident in this movie. Nothing. Anything you see on screen was carefully curated and placed there. There was one accident. Meatloaf's pants falling down. <laughs> I, I bought that as part of the character. It kind of works. Yeah. It definitely wasn't intended. <laughs> I mean, he he's this wounded man. He used to be this big bodybuilder, lost his testicles, now he's got bitch tits. I buy that his pants fall down. If you hadn't have told me that, I would have thought it was part of the movie because I think it fit really well. But it's also worth pointing out at this point, even if you're still with Tyler Durden, and I don't know how you could be, Tyler Durden disappears. He is trying to train this group so that it is leaderless, that it no longer needs him, that he's franchised basically his anarchy. He's gone all over the country. He can't be everywhere at the same time, but everywhere he's gone, he's set up a little franchise like Starbucks, like the Krispy Kreme. He has done that with Fight Club, and now they don't need him anymore. They are scary, even if you don't think Tyler is scary. And right before we get the big twist here, as we turn into Act 3, it's really about Ed Norton retracing the steps and trying to figure out 
what Tyler's been doing while he's been taking a nap. Honestly, the first time I watched this, I thought that Angel Face was going to be the person who would turn and do the bad things before the tell and before I knew what the hell was going on. I thought that tension was being built up where he was going to do it and go rogue or something. Yeah, that it's breaking apart from the inside, that this internal jealousy is breaking it apart, not that it was always by design. But again, this is what Tyler signs up for. When Norton confronts him, he's like, should I have given you action items? (laughs) And the scene where he's doing the investigation and following Tyler city after city, again, I love the humor of this. They're in a totally different town, yet people are chanting his name is Robert Paulson. People are calling him Sir. And again, even before the reveal, I just thought the legend of the original Fight Club had spread so that everyone knew this guy was second in command. And you look up to him, not that he was Tyler, but finally the bartender in the traction reveals that he is Tyler Durden confirmed by a phone call to Marla. Right. Yeah, that's where it's really told to us. Well, I suppose it's really told after he hangs up the phone and there's Brad Pitt. But yeah, it's it's a it's three waves. They stretch it out as far as they can. First, it's a guy who thinks he's being tested and calls him Tyler Durden. But I think it's really appropriate that Ed Norton comes to realize it when he gets it from Marla. I, again, I still see that Marla is in some ways unintentionally, but very much the reason why all of this has sprung up. Because he couldn't be a normal boyfriend and date her like he should, he had to go off into a regressive boy fantasy and build an army of men that hate women. And they change Brad Pitt's look for the second half of this film. He shaves his head like the space monkeys. He's wearing a black sugar t-shirt, which when you were saying they found this all at a thrift shop, I should be so lucky as to find a black sugar shirt at a t-shirt shop. Actually, that definitely was created. It's actually, if you were to get up close enough to it, it's stitched together bits of pornography. Every little swatch of, of fabric is a different uh, genital. <laughs> nice. And he's wearing the pimp coat that looks like it's rotten. But I think yeah. that Macklemore stole his coat. He stole that look. Yeah, I agree. Again, you can tell me that this looks like grunge, but it's designer grunge. And it also looks cool. And you could see somebody spending way too much money to have this look. But this last act of the film, after the reveal, the reveal for me is the pinnacle. It's the climax of the movie for me. And everything else is kind of after play because now we get into kind of a very standard rote chase film and while it does have some nice twists and turns such as ed norton taking the files and going to the cops but all the cops are in on it and they're going to take his balls for going thinking it's a brave act of their leader to sacrifice his own (laughs) balls to show devotion there's there's some smile moments like that but this last half an hour it's way too much running around and flights and files and meeting with Marla and I do laugh at the clean food, but then her getting abducted on the bus. All of this is just inherently less interesting to me than the social commentary that's come before. Right. And it's taken on a real world edge to it, too. I mean, trucks with nitroglycerin in the basement of buildings and it's going to blow them up. I know we're two years before 9-11, but we're six years after the first World Trade Center attacks when, in fact, Al-Qaeda did attack buildings in this very way. It's Forgive the expression, but it's rather ballsy for them to restage the World Trade Center attack, failed as it was, as a punchline. This bothers me because 
not for that reason, although you see these things coming down and part of me again is cheering this on. When I watched this most times, I was in thousands of dollars of credit card debt and it's a wonderful, wonderful fantasy to think that someone could reset it to zero. And when you're <laughs> in thousands of dollars of credit card debt, you feel like that cop being held down by Project Mayhem where they're going to cut your balls off. Because I don't understand how 30% isn't loan sharking, but that's what credit cards are charging these days. Once they have you, once you get a credit card and go down that path, you are fucked. You're their bitch. The reason you borrowed the money is because you don't have it, and now they're charging you a 30% interest on the VIG? You're lucky just to make the interest on that. They are every bit as dirty as mafia. And the thought of, if you could wipe out credit card debt across the country, if somebody could pass that bill to bail out the American person versus bailing out the fucking corporations and going, credit card companies, you're fucked. You're not getting anything. Imagine what a revolution that would be. They say that the way to get out of a recession is by giving people a money they can spend. If people weren't spending 30% to pay that goddamn interest on fixing their air conditioner to a credit card company, I think that that would help the economy in general. So I love that idea. Sadly, I worked for Goliath National Bank. <laughs> and I talked to people who worked on 9-11, specifically for credit card companies. They are not housing all their data in one building in a large city. While they have their main offices with their mainframes in Manhattan, they had a backup in, of all places, Minnesota. And when 9-11 happened, the people in Minnesota literally closed their blast doors and stayed in there for 36 hours until they were sure that everything was safe. They had no water. They had no food except what was in there and stayed inside for 36 hours, stinking, festering garbage all over the place to make sure their data was safe and they would never lose who owed them money. Okay, but, you know, this is a fantasy. This is metaphor. You're saying that there's no practical way to erase debt by blowing up buildings, and I get that. But I can go along with it as a fantasy. I just think it's somewhat suspect, certainly in light of what happened two years later, it's definitely hard to cheer a terrorist cell for blowing up buildings. The only reason why it's really different is they've underscored that the buildings are empty. That all the space monkeys have ensured that there's going to be no casualties to any of these seven buildings falling down. And so, for that reason, it's not the same thing. But it still makes me queasy. Again, this is a movie that inspires me to want to stop allowing the things I own to start owning me. And anyone who listens to my other podcasts knows I'm kind of a super consumer. And so, this movie makes me question all my life choices. And one of the reasons, though, that one of the life choices I made that I question is allowing myself to go into credit card debt. I hate those fuckers, and I'm for anything that neutralizes them. Yeah, I know. I, I get it. But with no casualties on the table, you can kind of go with it. I guess I'm just more of an Ed Norton. Maybe you're Tyler Durden here, and we're fighting about the same thing. But I get why Ed wants it to stop. I get why he is willing to do anything and take responsibility to get control of a normal life again, that this has gone too far. I'm not sure I'd want to live in such chaos. And I think maybe he's reacting out of fear. Maybe this is the best thing that 
Tyler Durden has ever done. But I'm kind of with him. I'm not sure I could pull the bullet in my mouth. And I'm not sure what happens after he does, but I get where the impulse is coming from to end Tyler. And I agree. It's unrealistic to think there's no casualties. Even if every single maintenance worker and night shift worker in those buildings is Project Mayhem, those buildings are going to fall on something. In the book, that actually was the point. There was only one building, and he was blowing it up not to stop credit card debt, but because it would fall on a natural history museum, and he didn't like the idea that people held on to the past. Yeah, don't like that as much. It also doesn't fit the motif of anti-consumerism that at least is going through the movie. Right. Yeah, It's. I think the movie is, in some ways, it definitely more streamlined and structured, and maybe better overall. Maybe a better experience than the book. Definitely different. As for the bullet in the head, gnarly special effect there. I mean, Rob Botton doing the effects, great guy, and that is just gross. I really thought the first time I saw it, though, that Ed Norton solved everything through suicide, that he could survive that, but Tyler Durden is killed. I don't know that it's the bullet that kills Tyler Durden so much as Ed Norton's inner strength to do it. The pulling of the trigger is his final victory over Tyler. He wins that fight. I've just always loved, I've been a huge Pixie fan. I was always sad that they never got the commercial glory. I felt like they should. I'm glad that they will now always be remembered as the people that did the end theme song as the buildings (laughs) go down. This is their highest profile moment. And I just love that everyone knows where is my mind. It's it's a great song. It's a great way to cap it. It's kind of romantic because Marla comes back to watch it all go down. We think that, hey, maybe this was a love story. Maybe they will get together. Maybe everything will be fine. What do you guys think? Is this a good first date? I I get at this point that Marla finally has the reality sink in that he is more fucked up than she is. Yeah. I I mean, because I always felt that she felt she was more fucked up. Yeah. And again, it goes back to being the dramatic friend, like how much of it was for effect to appear fucked up. And it's like, the look on her face is like, oh, shit. Kind of, you know what I mean? And you're right, the Pixies, they deserve a lot more than they've ever gotten. And this was a great thing for them. This movie turned me on to the Pixies, and I now really like them. Ugh, Arnie. But as for these characters, I love the ending. It's a fairy tale ending. I think there's a whole bunch of cops waiting for Ed Norton, and he's got to go to a hospital anyway for that fucking wound. The get some gauze is not going to help. No, that is beyond (laughs) gauze, definitely. How about a sequel then? I hear that it may never be a movie. I doubt that they'll ever assemble this cast again for a movie, but there is going to be a comic. I think even this year it's scheduled for Chuck Palahniuk to tell us where Tyler Durden or whatever this narrator is really called is doing now that he's approaching 50. There is a Fight Club sequel with him and Marla and maybe Tyler as well. Okay, I don't get that him and Marla would last past next week. God, I don't want to see that. I don't want these characters to get old. God damn. Think about it. Imagine them at 50. Unless they have continued down some anarchist, anti-consumer path, do you want them to have the house with the picket fence and the 2.3 kids? Do you want that? That's a that's a fucking death sentence. Well, I imagine that's exactly where Chuck Palahniuk will start, and then he'll shit on all over it. I I can't imagine that he, if he's going to sell out, he's at least not going to sell out the spirit of the original. It may not work, but I'm curious. Oh, I'll read it. 
Yeah, I can't imagine how he can make it seem plausible that these two will, yes, go off and and remain a couple in any shape or form. But yeah, I'll I'll take a look at it, and you know, if it's good enough, yeah, I guess I hope there will be a a movie. See, I have this big problem with them doing reboots, remakes, and sequels decades after the movie. Why can't things just be left alone. And not saying they don't like all sequels. Some of them, yeah, there may be more story to tell. I don't feel that there's more story to tell here. No, there's no more story to tell, but there might be more profits to reap. This thing was very successful on home video. It was a flop in theaters, but Fox made a lot of money off of it, and I think that's always the bottom line, Marjorie. It may not be the right thing to do, but it could be the profitable thing to do. It's funny to me because... You say there's no more story to tell. I agree. To me, this isn't about story. This is about statement. This is an anti-consumer, wake the fuck up, Gen X statement. And yet, Fox has marketed this where I, a member of Gen X, consumed the Fight Club video game for Xbox. (laughs) Did you play that? I was wondering who did. I knew that they made one, but I never even saw it. It was like Street Fighter. It had no plot. It had no anti-consumer. I played as Ed Norton fighting against bitch tits. That is bizarre. Yeah, I, that's all it could be, right? How how limited in scope. But okay, I guess if you really love the movie, it's a way of living it out. By giving them money, doing exactly what this movie says not to do. Well, and... and- <laughs> I I always take great satisfaction and a little part of me dies because by doing what this movie tells me not to do, you know, you go to Target and they're selling Fight Club shirts, mass produced Fight Club shirts with the soap. And it's like, do you not get the movie? But someone somewhere along the line, probably Fox or somebody is like, hey, we can still make money off this shit. And I hope that maybe a penny or two is landing in the coffers of David Fincher and Chuck Palahniuk. I mean, it's okay for artists to get rewarded for the work they do. They made a very good movie, so I'm okay with them, quote, cashing in. But it is a mixed message. Then again, I think Fight Club is destined to always be misunderstood. It's a complicated movie with a lot of different ways to see it. And and I'm sure that we could go more hours more and find a lot more inside. Well, Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend Fight Club? Marjorie. Absolutely. Especially if you are in my age range, I think that you can identify with the message if you imagine yourself 15 years ago and kind of everything that you stood for and damn the man and screw consumerism because we didn't have money, guys. So I don't know that the generations behind me with their privileged life and the you can do it and participation ribbons could get this and get the message and have it impact their life. I mean, I still love this movie. It's still a great movie. I like the message. Is it violent? Yes. And But I like violent movies. Do I think it could be misconstrued? Absolutely. I think that there are still jackasses out there who think the movie's just about wailing on your friend. But it's not? <laughs> it, this is not for the MMA crowd. This is not for you guys. This is not what you want. Trust me. But I do recommend it, especially if you were, say, a child of the 70s or 80s. I think it'd really resonate with you and maybe inspire you to do something good. So I do recommend it. Something good like raise nearly $3,000 for charity. There you go. (laughs) I did do something good. But, you know, damn the man. Go out and help somebody or go donate $100 to the food pantry or something. Give somebody some money on the street. Help your fellow man. Or, you know, there is a donate button. You can support independent podcasting. (laughs) That's a good cause. Just saying. Stuart. 
High recommend. And, you know, despite the many times that I saw this in quick succession, uh, it is a movie that gets better. I actually think it's just one of those films that's enriching. The first time I saw it, I liked it, but I felt like parts of it didn't work and it felt clunky. And I guess I just thought of it like so many of David Fincher's films as a implausible thriller. You see a movie like his, like The Game, a movie I wasn't that crazy about. I think when I initially saw this, I thought it was the game, but it's not. I mean, it really is a message movie, and it makes its points with humor. The reason why it doesn't feel like someone's standing on a soapbox is because, A, I don't know that there's any clear-cut answers to what they're suggesting, and B, it's funny as hell. I mean, think of this as a bromance buddy comedy, and you'll really have an enjoyable time if you can sync up with its very dark humor. Who will sync up with it? I dare guess. I mean, we've already stated it. This may be for our generation alone. I do think that it's the easiest sell for people that are in their 30s and 40s to understand it. For people that have grown up being marketed to their whole life and have an online identity that is branded, I think they should see it even more so. I hope that it opens some eyes. I hope it raises some awareness. I think now more than ever, we need to be aware of corporate influence and whether or not it makes you want to blow up a building or not, I think that knowledge is power. So everyone should see it. And hopefully most people will like it. And three for three, this is one of my all-time favorite films, and I'm giving it the strongest of recommends. Even though I do feel, from a pure movie plot pacing perspective, that the last half hour is inherently less interesting to me than the rest of it, I love this movie's vibe. I love this movie's swagger. I love this movie's style. I love its editing. I love its camera work. I love its look. I love that it was shot on film and that they left some of the grain in on the Blu-ray that I could see. It just, this isn't a movie that I want to see polished. I love that at times you got Brad Pitt talking right into the camera and the fucking negative starts jerking around the screen. This movie is a visual and auditory masterpiece. Tremendous work of art in that way. And I, like you, Stuart, also think that this is something that the message needs to go out and people need to check themselves about their consumerism. The stuff you own ends up owning you. This is a statement that could bear repeating a little bit more in this day and age. Coming from me, that may sound like more than an ounce of hypocrisy, but it's wonderful to reevaluate your life priority sometimes. I think you're talking about Barney, that guy that lives in the house with you that rides around on bicycles and, and does plays with nunchucks. <laughs> Barney. <laughs> yeah, this inspires... I don't want to say this inspires the Barney in me, because I love you, you <laughs> That's love right. Me. There is that Barney. <laughs> Wasn't speaking of the purple dinosaur. I'll, I'll like to think you think of the suit up Barney from How I Met Your Mother. This is inspiring some part of me for an anarchist rebellion. You know, I think that there is that, which is a dangerous message. And I like that the movie also ends with, you know, anarchy and fascism and these kinds of things. Do you really want to go down that path? Because I find some irony in this movie that when Tyler Durden gets his army, what do they do? They fix up his place and make it nicer and make a garden. So it's kind of got a mixed message that's not entirely clear, but Brad Pitt's monologues are no doubt hypnotic, as is this film. It's just a great movie, a funny movie. I can't state that enough that without laughs, this movie's nihilism would be just unbearable. But because you've got Norton telling the jokes and Brad Pitt mugging for the camera 
and Helena Bonham Carter and her 12-inch dildo, then this movie is all around a good time. And it wasn't just the twist that made me tell Marjorie, hey, you have to see this movie. It was the vibe and the fun. And yeah, I don't care what generation you're in. It may not speak to you as strongly as it did us then, but everyone should see just this great piece of good filmmaking from a director who I, I, I agree with you also, Stuart. This is his best film. I think it's a career best for everyone. Brad Pitt, Ed Norton, Helena Bonham Carter. I think it's just wonderful when you see everyone doing the height of their abilities at the same time on a project that's worthy. It is just so inspiring, even though I'm not sure what it inspires me to do. I guess it inspires me to get through more Stephen King movies that are awful. Yes, it inspires you to make a podcast about a good movie this month. <laughs> yes, it's going to be some really dark days before we get to something I want to talk about again. But uh, It's not going to be that long. We're not talking too long, just a few weeks. And I think we should run down our schedule for listeners who may be not getting mangled with us. Because in early April, we are going to be reviewing Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and every frame they release makes this movie look better to me. Even the comic book hater that I am, I have to admit, I'm impressed. It looks good. I don't want to get too excited. I recognize that this is a superhero movie, it, you know, but so was The Dark Knight. Could it be that good? I hope so. But I, it, it definitely looks like something worth seeing in the movie theater. I'm excited about it. And then we also have another theatrical superhero movie a month later with Amazing Spider-Man 2. Less excited about that. <laughs> Those that heard my, really, the whole foray into Spider-Man did not go so well for me. And I've, I've probably got no more hell on anything other than my not recommend for Spider-Man 2. I, you know, I, I'm always willing to give him a chance. I'm not a Spider-Man hater, but nothing I'm seeing in the previews is making me think it looks much better than the last one I didn't recommend. We'll see. And then that same month, X-Men Days of Future Past. I must admit, I'm kind of blinded by this one. I haven't been really following the trailers. I know everyone's in it, and I know it's going to be epic, and I think I'm just saving myself for it. It'll it'll blow me away, either by being too much or too good, but I'm sure that once I finally get to it, it will be inescapable and probably another three-hour podcast. And outside of that, on our main feed, we do have a lot of Stephen King. We've got to finish off the Mangler trilogy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it doesn't finish us off first. Yeah, I'm going to wash that series right out of my hair. And then we're going to come back for Sometimes They Come Back, another Stephen King trilogy based off of a 20-page short story. Sometimes they don't know what you're talking about. I'm one of them, but uh, I'll know when we get to April. And then we're going to go into cyberspace with the Lawnmower Man. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, we are going to do that. And for the listeners who aren't listening to all this King stuff, and Stuart, you said good movies. I mean, we're going to be hitting a cinema classic that I can't say in advance that I'll recommend. I might. We'll see. We got to listen. Come June 2001, A Space Odyssey. That is true. I am very, very excited to always talk about Kubrick, and I'll just go ahead and say it. This is my favorite Kubrick. So, yes, I'm going to have a lot of positive things to say about it. It's a movie I'm in awe of, and I will not only be watching 2001 and 2010, I will be reviewing all four of Arthur C. Clarke's books over at Books and Nachos. And our donation series is also going to be starting up here in April. We're going to be also going to cyberspace with the so we're not all that far away from another great movie. In about a month, we'll be doing The Matrix as well as Animatrix and the other two sequels. And then 
as part of that silver donation series ending with the Wachowski's new theatrical release, Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, it looks like a uh, Matrix on acid. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if it looks good, but it looks like a lot. Uh, much like Cloud Atlas, it looks like it may melt your brain. It's it's a lot of movie from what I'm judging by the trailer. And definitely, I'm always happy to go to the theater to, to close out a franchise. I think it, it's good to have a mystery factor. We kind of know how those Matrix sequels ended. I don't know how Jupiter Ascending is going to go. May, will it go up? Will it go down? We'll know in July. And then for the gold donation series, we're going to go ape with all Planet of the Apes films. The five classics. Tim Burton's reboot with Helena Bottom Carter here. That's true. It's kind of a bucket list for me. I've only seen bits and pieces of the Ape series. I've liked what I've seen, but I, I'm missing about half of them. So it'll be nice to go sequentially through the whole saga. They're a little bit different. I want to remind folks, it's sci-fi for an era that didn't think sci-fi was about action and lasers. I mean, it's really kind of heady, interesting, G-rated stuff there for the first five movies. And then, yeah, we'll be getting to Burton's Apes and then the two new, more action or oriented ape movies rise and dawn of the planet of the apes so we hope you'll join us for all of that at nowplayingpodcast.com and thank you in advance to everyone who donated for the american lung association and allowed us to be able to do this bonus podcast yes thank you very 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 much a lot of people gave me some great messages when they made their donation and i got some encouragement on facebook and i really appreciate it and the money's going to go to some good research because it sucks when you can't breathe, guys. The whole point of the race is it's a vertical climb, and it really gets your heart pounding, and it's hard to breathe when you get to the top, and it's right. So until next time, this conversation is over. My God. I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Thank you for listening to this bonus Now Playing review of Fight Club. And especially thank you to those who donated to the American Lung Association's Walk for Air Climb. The money raised for that charity made this review possible. Sooner or later, we all became what Tyler wanted us to be. You can hear hundreds more movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You should join our club. And your friend. Check out reviews of classic fighting films as Rocky. The Karate Kid, Freddy vs. Jason, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Stupid than a movie must be coffee. Your support helps keep Now Playing on the air. Our spring donation drive begins in April 2014, where we will be offering bonus review podcasts covering The Matrix and Planet of the Apes movie series. Find out all the details by clicking the banner at nowplayingpodcast.com. Should I email you? Should I put this on your action item list? Uh, you decide your own level of involvement. Now Playing's Fight Club Review is edited by Arnie. This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. And they really, really listen to you instead of just... Instead of just waiting for their turn to speak. Fight Club is the property of 20th Century Fox and Regency Enterprises, and no infringement is intended. I felt like destroying something beautiful. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I want to know what you're thinking. Fuck what you know. You need to forget about what you know. That's your problem. Forget about what you think you know about life, about friendship, and especially about you and me. Now Playing's Fight Club Review is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I'm not exposed to 
bespeak any such information to you, nor would I even if I had said information you want at this juncture be able. <laughs> we just had a near-life experience! I mean, I'd gone back and forth. I hated him after Alien 3. And donors who donated way back when for our Alien series or our DVDs heard that. And just to reiterate, no, those podcasts are no longer available. Save myself some email replies there. (laughs) If they listen. Courtney Love, you know that she's going to embrace that crazy side. You know that she'd be game for going to cancer survivor meetings and smoking a cigarette and laughing at him. Well, hell, she's probably doing it right now. Yeah, she might be. She should go to some kind of support group, judging by that facial reconstruction surgery I've seen that she's calling a face. Yeah, I could use one, too. I'm sorry, what's happening? Pee break. break. Oh, great. Okay. I, I was thinking the same thing. All right. Perfect. <laughs> Yay. We're back in a few. Oh, okay. shit. Those flew out of my hand. Chemical brother. Is it chemical brothers or dust brothers? Dust That's brothers. Right. Don't get your brothers right. Okay. <laughs> With this. And calls him, and calls him Robert Paulson. Calls him <laughs> Tyler Durden. For the American Lug Association and allowed us to be able to do this bonus podcast. Say American Lung Association again. American Lung Association? No, 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 Arnie. Oh. American Lung Association. Yeah, you said lug. Well, there's that too. Yeah, I, I don't I won't, don't want to give any more lugs money. Do not give them money. They just drink.